Thank you for tuning in to Stories from the Market, a program of people sharing the threads that bind us together in the tapestry of life. Stories from the Market is a broadcast companion to the monthly storytelling concert series put on by storyteller Jeanette Waddell in the Milledgeville Allied Arts. Recorded the week after the observation of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday in 2017, tonight's featured stories center on the theme, Standing Up and Speaking Out for Social Justice. We'll begin tonight's program with Betty Pepitone sharing the story Cranes, in which she weaves personal history with legend for a tale about the search for that which is right. Both of tonight's featured stories were recorded live at the Allen's Market in downtown Milledgeville. So without further ado, Betty Pepitone with her story, Cranes. I'm glad to be here today to tell you a bit of my story, a bit of my life, and to somehow tie it into our topic for today, social justice. I grew up in the middle of nowhere on a farm in Kansas that was homesteaded in the 1800s. Our nearest neighbors were three miles away. <clears throat> the closest town was five miles from the farm and has currently 1,000 people living there. I'm the middle child with an older sister and a younger brother, both of whom still live in the middle of nowhere. My father's 88 and my mother 86, both are still alive. My father continues to farm, living in the old farmhouse that my grandfather built, and my mother struggles with severe dementia, Alzheimer's. She lives in a small hospital. She's usually the only patient in the hospital. <laughs> the nurses adore her. I adore her. Um, earlier this month, she suffered a stroke, a TIA stroke, and so I went out right away. Um, because they said another one would happen soon. It didn't, thank you, thank you. Um, but as I was helping to feed her one day, she looked up with amazement and said, you look exactly like my daughter. <laughs> and, I, and, and I replied, tell me about her, tell me about her. And then our conversation was lost. I graduated from high school with a group of people, 45 total, the largest group that had gone through the school system in forever. We were very proud of that, there were all 45 of us. Um, we traveled 12 years of elementary, middle, and high school together. Most of us left the community to go to college or to pursue careers away from, away from our homes due to lack of employment possibilities there. But back to my childhood. I was for the most part a quiet child, seen, not heard. As a highly sensitive person and an introvert, I loved the outdoors, the animals, the earth, and I loved quietness. At the age of seven, I learned how to steer the pickup truck while it idled fast as my dad fed hay to the cattle off the tailgate. I still love to drive. I'm pretty possessive of that. Okay. We had, and we still have, a small cemetery, a small family cemetery in the timber behind the farmhouse, which 
Um, a timber is a grove of trees that were planted during the Dust Bowl. My dad remembers those days. Many of my ancestors are buried there, along with two small graves, where two little twins were buried. This was after the Civil War, as African Americans were leaving the South. A family came through the area. Due to illness, this traveling family lost two cherished babies, offering a place for them to lie still in the quietness of the universe was the right thing to do. Since that time, so much has happened. Moving, college, marriage, miscarriage, moving, healthy baby daughter, moving, healthy baby daughter, take two, unemployment, divorce, moving, food stamps, Moving, college, moving, remarriage, moving, employed, teaching, moving, but always holding on to life. You get the idea. Anyway, we ended up in Milledgeville in 1991. Greg teaching um, at Georgia College. I was teaching in the Baldwin County school system. I taught everywhere from preschool up through sixth grade. Our oldest daughter Laura was in the fifth grade and Jennifer was in the third grade. Now, what in the world does this have to do with social justice? What in the world does this have to do with the cranes? A few years back I wrote this poem not realizing why, as we do a lot of things, and then you look back and say, oh, okay, I understand now. This is called The Crane. Gliding gracefully out from all that made her, leaving the chaos, changing the air, rippling waves, creating a silent cacophony. Jennifer had come for a visit from Austin, Texas, and Jennifer's my youngest daughter. At that time, she was in the master's program for social work at the University of Texas. We had spent the afternoon talking about various vocal groups that she had discovered while in Austin. One group in particular was the Decemberists. She pulled out a CD of theirs called The Crane Wife. We listened. The group sang of a cold and wintry night in which a lonely man rescues an injured crane. When he found the crane, it was near death because of an arrow lodged in its wing. He removed the arrow, dressed the wound, and held the crane beneath the rising moon until it could fly away, and it did. Time passed. One evening, the man heard a knocking at his door. There was, of course, a beautiful young woman at the door. They fell in love, they married, and they began their lives together. The man created things with his hands, had his own home, but had fallen on hard times financially. 
His wife offered to help on one condition. He was not to see her work until that work was complete. He agreed. She closed herself away and wove a beautiful tapestry. Her husband was unaware that as she wove, feathers fell from her skin. He was, however, aware that she was growing weak and thin. When completed, the tapestry was a work of art and it sold for a great deal of money. Financial doom was alleviated, at least for the time being. Instead of counting his blessings, the husband demanded more and more and more tapestries. The woman, for a while, continued to try and please her husband, all the while losing herself in the process. The song ends as the wife returns to her crane form, flying away, never to return. The man hangs his head low, realizing what he has lost because of his creed. This is a Japanese uh, folk tale, um, a beautifully written one. So it's one that, as the Decemberists sang this tune, the tears will fall. A few weeks later, Jennifer had returned to Austin, and my husband and I were at a social gathering for students and mentors of an Education for Ministry class in which some of us were enrolled. I've never been comfortable mingling in large groups of people, so it was no surprise that I found myself in the kitchen. I realized that I felt more at ease in one particular place in the kitchen. And there I stood, drinking my wine. Fairly soon, another woman joined me, and then another. The three of us stood in a small triangle, drinking wine and making small talk, when one said that she was sure we had done this exact thing before. We all agreed with her. As we continued our conversation, the energy surrounding us felt charged, focused, intense. We discussed the possibility of past lives, of future lives. We wanted to make sure that wherever we were, we would recognize each other. And to do so, we needed a code word to break through the barriers of time. Immediately, I said, Crane. We toasted our gathering of three and christened ourselves the Cranes. A favorite author of mine, Paulo Colho, he's Brazilian, he wrote a book called Aleph. Aleph refers to a place like the one that I've just described. Colho says, the Aleph is as a point in the universe that contains all other points, present and past, large and small you normally come across it by chance. For this to happen, the person has to be in the actual place where the Aleph exists. And as I was talking before this started, 
There are people, I think, that have their olives with them, whether it's creating a bonsai forest or moving into a home. You'll find that place. We call this a small olive. Colho goes on to say, the first thing you feel is a terrible desire to cry. Not out of sadness or happiness, but out of pure excitement. You know that you are understanding something that you can't even explain to yourself. Since the christening of the cranes, the three cranes have merged our voyages. However, in the beginning, we would, avoid, we would find ways to avoid getting together, as all three of us are strong introverts and highly sensitive people. But for some reason, we persevered, like migratory cranes. Even though we were going against our deeply ingrained instincts, we realized our voices mattered. Our thoughts mattered. Speaking out mattered. Like the crane wife, we have struggled to balance our lives amidst the normal every day, our families, jobs, illnesses, retirement, all the while willing ourselves not to fly away. After finally forming our small group of cranes, we began to talk about our lives, past and present as well as our hopes for the future, our migrations, all the while counting our blessings. I grew up about 15 miles from the Quivira Salt Marsh Wildlife Refuge in Kansas. I didn't realize when I was a child what a gift that was. Quivira is recognized as one of the eight wonders of Kansas, actually. Up until about eight years ago, while I appreciated all that the Wildlife Refuge did to provide a safe haven for the local wildlife, I had no idea that it offered protection for the migratory flocks, usually consisting of two to five whooping cranes, two to five sandhill cranes. To be there when the cranes are present is truly magical. Years now, after our crane encounter in the olive, I find that many things are changing once again. I am flying away. Greg and I are moving again. We are going to where we are known as, in the most important sense, Oma and Opa, <laughs> by Jennifer's two little boys. We are needed there, especially during these unstable political and social times. Our oldest daughter, Laura, lives in Guatemala City as an art historian. With an international airport 20 minutes from our house, we can get to her relatively quickly. And last night she flew again with all the airports going through all sorts of things. She said she had no trouble. So I was relieved and glad to hear. The Cranes. We are struggling with the changes the move will bring. I am flying away. I am migrating. But when I was at the farm in January, Dad and I decided to spend some time at the Quivira Wildlife Refuge. As we drove to the entrance, 
there was a sign posted and it stated, please be respectful of nature. The sandhill cranes are present. I realized wherever the cranes are, we will and must find a way to speak up, even as an introvert. Also, as my ancestors knew how to help the family in need because offering a place for them to lie still in the quietness of the universe was the right thing to do. We also must offer a place and a voice to those in need because it's the right thing to do. You just heard Betty Pepitone sharing Cranes. Her story was recorded in January 2017 in a live storytelling event at the Allen's Market in downtown Milledgeville. We'll continue tonight's program with a story from Jeanette Waddell. Jeanette is the host and master of ceremonies during our live storytelling events. But in January, she also shared this story on finding the courage to stand up. Jeanette Waddell. I grew up in a town very similar to Betty's, Devereux, Georgia. And there are a few people here today from Devereux, Georgia. We're a little bit from town. I lived in the middle of nowhere. And uh, we rode the school bus uh, to school every day. Uh, at the time of this story, I was probably a sophomore or junior in high school. And the bus driver was someone we all knew in our local community. A very well-respected man. And he'd driven the bus, well, as long as I'd been going to school, he probably was our bus driver. He was also one of our neighbors. And his daughter was my best friend. As he aged, he began to have difficulty with some of the responsibility of driving a school bus full of children. And two incidents that I remember really quite clearly. Uh, one, uh, in order to get to where a lot of us lived, you had to go across the railroad track. And of course, you have the arm that comes down and the lights that flash and all of that and the sound that comes. And on this particular day, all of that was going on and every child on the bus was aware of what was happening. Everyone except the bus driver. And fortunately, we were able to get across the tracks right as the train comes roaring past. That was unsettling, very unsettling. So being one to occasionally speak up, I mentioned that to some of the administrators at the school. And I really wasn't sure what, hap what was going to happen. And it wasn't a very easy thing to do because even at my age, I understood the importance of his job to his family. 
I understood that there were very few uh, jobs for older African-American men. His daughter was one of my best friends. He and his wife were friends of our parents. We went to the same, we didn't belong to the same church, but we attended uh, church together on occasion. Someone very respected. So even going to administrators took, it took a lot to think about. But eventually there came the time when I felt like I couldn't stay silent anymore. So I did, I went to the school administrators and I, I felt confident that it would be resolved and he continued to drive the bus. And then sometime later, apparently he was driving too fast and the police were following him with the flashing lights and the sirens and again it was all apparent to every student uh, on the bus, all except our bus driver. And his daughter went to the front and said to him, Daddy, they want you to stop. And he did. And again, I'm thinking, I'm a child. Why do I have to be the one to say something about this? Isn't anyone listening? So once again, I you know, go to the administrators, I tell them what's going on, and eventually, I'm not sure how it was resolved, but he was no longer our bus driver. And that was many, many years, years, years ago. And when I think back to where did that come from? Because I wasn't the oldest student on the bus. There were seniors on the bus. I was not a senior. Why wasn't there someone else that felt the responsibility for protecting a busload of children? You know, I can think back, um, think back to my mother. My mother was born in 1919. Uh, she grew up in Devereaux, uh, a farmer, did many, many jobs. When I started school, we lived on a very narrow road, and this is really the truth, Robert. I had to walk a mile to catch the bus. <laughs> I, I know we hear that all the time, but literally I did have to walk a mile to catch the bus. I had an older brother who was a whole lot taller and walked a whole lot faster and wanted to be with his friends. He didn't necessarily want his little sister tagging along. So oftentimes, I would get almost to the bus and he would leave me. Same bus driver now. <laughs> He'd leave me. And, um, Eventually, my mother got to the point where she said, you know, I'm just tired of my daughter coming home crying because she missed the school bus. Now remember, this was 19, I started school in 1960, a time when African Americans have very little voice. Certainly African American women have even smaller voices and simply are not heard. 
I'm not sure exactly what my mother said. But the next year, when I was in second grade, the bus drove to my house. <laughs> and so for the rest of my high school years, I could go out to the front door and you know, there would be the bus. But I remember all of the times when she stood up, when she spoke up. And you know, today we can do that without the consequences that could, would, did, often happen in 1960. But there were things to her that were more important. And so she passed on a legacy to all of her children. There are times when standing up is the only thing you can do. And so when I'm riding that bus and I'm with a bus driver that I respect, there was no animosity towards him. You know, now I understand that he was probably developing Alzheimer's and some form of dementia. But in those days, very little was known. He certainly was not intending to cause any harm to us. I understood that. And yet the time had come for someone else to become our bus driver. And no matter how much I tried, I simply could not be silent. And I am sure when my mother was thinking about um, what needed to be done so that the bus would actually pick, they had to actually had to widen the road that we lived on. I'm sure there were many times when she thought about that. What's gonna happen? How am I gonna be treated? What are gonna be the repercussions because I'm living in a house I don't own? But there was something more important. And I am so, so grateful that she was able not just to tell us about speaking up and standing up, she was so willing to show us I have a younger sister and a younger brother, and I can go on and tell you all the times when they have stood up and, uh, and spoken up, and just two little incidents about my youngest sister, Laverne, we call her Peaches. Uh, but she's fearless, and she really is fearless. When she was ready to graduate, the requirements for graduation had changed. Not her problem as far as she was concerned. <laughs> I have met all the requirements and I am ready to graduate. So she goes before the Board of Education and she graduates in 11th grade. Everybody else has to go until they're in 12th grade. <laughs> but she was willing to stand up for herself. She had, was getting ready to enroll at uh, Georgia State and uh, um, math exam was required for her to enroll. So she's in the classroom, there's a proctor, they read all the instructions about what you're able to do, and she has a calculator on her desk. 
And I know, we all know, you don't use a top calculator if you're taking a math test. Well, they told her, they never told her not to. <laughs> so she has her calculator, it's on her desk. The proctor is walking all around, the instructions are read. Nothing is said about a calculator. So of course, when the test is over, the proctor walks over and tells her that uh, she failed because she has used a calculator. She even had an attorney tell her, you can't take on Georgia State. Well, that didn't mean anything to Laverne. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. So she goes before the review board, she presents her case, and you know, of course she prevails. But how many people in those circumstances would have decided that this is Georgia State or this is the Board of Education. Doesn't mean anything to her if she feels like she's right. But we can all look, look at our mom and we can say that she was our champion. She was our champion. And you know what? There was no mountain too high. There was Nothing, no lion too big, <laughs> that she wasn't willing to tackle on our behalf. Have mercy. So we never doubted that we had a champion. We never doubted that she would go to the wall for us. And because she showed us what it means, we were able to do that for ourselves. Thank you. And that is our program for this edition of Stories from the Market. We just heard Jeanette Waddell sharing a story about finding the courage to stand up. And we began tonight's program with Cranes by Betty Pepitone. If you enjoyed our program, please consider coming out to our next live event, which will take place at 2 p.m. Sunday, February 26th, in the Allen's Market in downtown Milledgeville. Stories from the Market is a co-production of Milledgeville Allied Arts, storyteller Jeanette Waddell, and WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight's program was produced for radio by yours truly, Daniel McDonald. Thank you for spending a portion of your evening here on WRGC 88.3 FM. I hope to hear you soon.